0: I also invite you to turn in the book of Psalms to Psalm 37. We're actually going to look at a portion of that first. Psalm 37. Back in the 1990s, um, it was a pretty amazing time in the life of um, the Christian community here in North America. Uh, True also in the life of our church and others, um, Promise Keepers was at its height during that time, and in February of 1996, uh, a few of us here from Westwood went to a national pastors conference that was held in Atlanta, Georgia, there at the Georgia Dome, and it was an amazing event, and the theme of that particular conference, there were 40,000 pastors in that, in that building, the theme of that conference was racial reconciliation and it was a powerful move of God uh, among the men that were in that in that building. We came back home from that and the next Sunday an African American family joined our church. They walked our membership process then was very different. That family walked down the aisle, took my hand, we prayed together, I presented them for membership and they were voted into the membership of our church. As they came into our church, A white member of our church got up and walked out. And then he began to go around the community and he was talking about our church. He was kind of running us down publicly in different places. And he also was talking badly about me and my family. I didn't take that well. I was hot to put it mildly. And so in my anger and in my Frustration and everything else that, you know, was kind of going along with that. I burned him up in a letter. Now, I didn't send it. Praise God, I didn't send it. But I burned him up in a letter. And I called a good friend of mine who was pastoring, Mark Sterling. He was a pastor at North Roxburgh Baptist Church at the time. Mark went on to serve at the Georgia Baptist State Convention. I met Mark as one of those... You know, it's it's one of those spiritual markers in my life. I met Mark at Open Kettle. I remember the table we were sitting at, and I remember the conversation we had. And I read him that letter. Or actually, I gave him that letter. And I said, Mark, I want you to read this and tell me what you think. So, Mark, being the the sweet brother that he was, read that letter. And he said, pull out your Bible and turn to Psalm 37. So, <laughs> Pull out your Bible, turn to Psalm 37. Now this is not attributed to 1 Samuel chapter 24, but I believe with all of my heart that as David comes toward the end of his life and he reflects back on his life, he remembers an event. He remembers a season, he remembers a specific event he remembers his heart and how he was struggling with why is this happening and how am I going to respond to that? So I believe Psalm 37 has a direct correlation to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And I love the fact that the Psalm begins with a word that I grew up hearing from my grandpa about fretting. It's not a mountain word. It's a biblical word. All right. And, and the word fret means to get heated. To just get stirred up, to be troubled deeply about something. So, follow along with me. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I I encourage you to read it. I I often point people to Psalm 37 when we're counseling about situations. Psalm 37 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. I memorized this verse out of the old NIV. And the NIV says dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So either way, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now look at this next verse. These are the two verses that, that Brother Mark pointed me to as he was counseling me and helping me work through uh, my anger and everything that was going along with it. In verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still, wait before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And that same thing just works its way through the rest of the, the rest of the Psalm. And he just continually says, wait for the Lord. Keep his way. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. Mark's word to me that day was, Gerald, sooner or later, righteousness will be revealed or the lack of it. So be careful, brother. That was his word to me. Be careful that that what does eventually get revealed is what you would want to be revealed. Because it will happen on both sides. Righteousness or the lack of it will be revealed one way or the other. Why do things like that happen in our lives? Why why do we have those moments, those seasons, it seems? Quick and painless is what we want, right? I mean, that's that's what we want. And it's a phrase we like to hear. It's a phrase we like to believe. Um, And so, I mean, if I'm going to my dentist, if I'm going to my orthopedist, I had a colonoscopy a few weeks ago. When I'm going back to my proctologist, I want it quick and painless, all right? I just do. That's, That's what I want. Quick and painless is our preferred path in life, if we'll just be honest with ourselves. Whether it's physical health or spiritual health, give me the pill. I'll take the medicine rather than go through the work that's involved. Why is life not like that? Why, 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 why do we have 1 Samuel chapter 24, actually why do we have several chapters here in the middle of Samuel, that find David confronted with opportunities, and especially in this chapter, he has the opportunity to take a shortcut, to take the quick and painless way to the throne. But he chooses not to do so. You see, God has promised David the throne, but the path there has been long and hard and will continue to be long and hard. Why? Why why is that the case? Why has God chosen to make our lives that way? Hmm? Think about that for just a second. So think about the big picture of Scripture again. All right? That main plot, we've touched on that and we'll continue to. That main plot of Scripture, alright? Go back to the book of Genesis. From creation to fall to God's rescue and God's promise of a new creation, a recreation, alright? The subplot in that are little pictures throughout Scripture that give us that image again. Specifically, I'm thinking about the Exodus. And the picture of the Exodus of Israel being brought out of slavery into the wilderness and then into the promised land is a picture of life. It's a picture of life in Christ being bought out of slavery and led into the wilderness before we ever will see the promised land. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced. Everything in David's life points us to Christ. And everything that we see in Jesus' life, it's just a reminder. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, I'll read that to you. You don't have to turn over there. But in Matthew, Jesus, the first thing that happens in his ministry is he is led into the wilderness. Mark said he was cast or thrown into the wilderness by God to be tempted. And he was there for 40 days. Like 40 years for Israel. So he's in the wilderness, and the last temptation, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. There's a shortcut, Jesus. You don't have to go the way of the cross. Satan seemed to be tempting Jesus there with that. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. So the devil left him. So the temptation to take the shortcut was a temptation that Jesus faced on our behalf, and he overcome that. David faces a temptation to take a shortcut. And these next three chapters, 24, 25, and 26, are going to help us gain some insight as to why it is that God chooses to lead us into the wilderness before we get home, before we get to the promised land. John Woodhouse, in his commentary, asked this question, and I love the way he puts it. If God's ultimate purpose for creation is the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more tears, why is the journey so long and difficult? Why is it filled with tears? Well, JT gave us the quick answer for that before we sang, I need thee every hour. It's the same reason that Israel was in that wilderness. Yeah, it was a result of their sin, but it was also providentially a part of God's purpose to grow them to understand we won't make it without you, Lord. There is no shortcut in our sanctification. There is no shortcut in our Christ likeness. And this, this is the picture that we see there. And Gary read for you out of 1 Peter chapter 2 where now David is an example for us. But he is also a signpost pointing us to Jesus. Because it says in the scripture that Jesus did not revile in return when he was reviled. But instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So that's the theme of 1 Samuel 24. He did not revile in return. Now last week we talked about the importance of hand And the hand is going to show itself, the word hand. The hand is going to be seen in chapter 24 again. But there's also a couple of other words that are pretty prominent in 24, 25, and 26. The word good or evil is going to be, depending on your version, somewhere around 80 times you're going to find the word good and evil in these three chapters. It's amazing how often we see that word. It should remind us of the tree of good and evil. When Adam made the decision to be the decision maker instead of letting God be the one on the throne making decisions, should remind us of that. Follow along with me as I read First Samuel twenty-four. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, "Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi." Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and David went, excuse me, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inmost parts, the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day in which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. "...to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed." So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called to Saul, "...My Lord the King!" And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe is in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you haunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. Now as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, excuse me, have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done for me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Or maybe Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. So we see those verses illustrated and lived out for us in in, here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. First see, He did not revile in return. Instead, He showed mercy. That's what David does here. He shows mercy. And in these first six verses, it's an amazing thing that we begin to see unfold before us. First thing here is, here is the shepherd of Israel, the anointed shepherd of Israel in the sheepfolds. I've never been to the Holy Land, but this part of the Holy Land, it rough is an understatement. And large, huge caves, they say, are there. Huge caves. And so we have this picture of these sheep folds. We saw these in Bolivia, you guys who have been up there with us. There's, there's these sheep folds. I've seen them in other parts of the world. Rocks laid up so that the sheep would have a place to go in Kind of go back over to John chapter 10 where Jesus talks about him being the chief shepherd and that he is the door and the way. So just imagine these rock corrals Well, David and his men are hiding among these sheepfolds and in the caves. Here is the shepherd in the sheepfold. It's pretty cool to see that. Reminds me of what later on we would read in, in Psalms. Where it says in Psalm 78, save it, Psalm 78 in verse 70, He chose David his servant and brought him from the sheepfolds. So here's the shepherd in the sheepfolds. And here's a royal bathroom break. We don't find many of those in the Bible. You don't find many of those in biographies of great kings and queens either. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit felt it was important for us to understand the context of what's going on in this cave. So you have Saul on a bathroom break in the cave. You have David and his men in the back of that very cave. I mean, again, just the, the providential hand of God here. Out of all the caves that would be there, David and his men are hiding in the back. So it's big enough for David and, and, his, and his, all of his followers. And by the way, the numbers here are not in his favor. He's outnumbered five to one. So David and his men are in the back of this cave. Saul's army is on the outside, and in walks Saul for a bathroom break. And the the phrase that's used in the Hebrew language it means to cover his feet. That's just the kind of just a colloquial phrase, cover his feet. So Saul is dropping his robe. This is a number two, if you need to know. Okay, <laughs> that's what he's doing, and he. Either he takes his robe off or drops it, and there he is, and there David is, and there his men are, and the men see it as a gift. God has gift-wrapped this gift for you, David, they say. Here is the day the Lord has said to you. Now, by the way, there's no place that the Lord has said to David, I'm going to deliver you into my hands, but his men are, are just working through the scenarios in their mind. Saul is your enemy, he's pursuing you, here he is, completely defenseless. What a gift. What a gift. And David, the skill here, okay, the the skill of this is just amazing to me. But David stealthily goes and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And his heart is crushed. Crushed. After he does it. Now surely we're wondering why. What is the big deal David? Why? Why would the text tell us there his heart struck him? Because he'd cut off a a corner of Saul's robe. Well again, to understand this, we need to recognize that the robe has been a prominent part of David's story. It's been a prominent part of 1 Samuel already, right? Because earlier in Samuel, in chapter 15, when God rejected Saul, Samuel the prophet said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then just subsequent later, in just a few verses, in verse 28, Samuel turned to go away, it says, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe And the Bible says that when he seized the skirt of his robe, it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So the robe is a picture of Saul's office, of his position. And David has attacked that just in cutting off a corner. Jonathan has already given David the robe of the king. Remember that? Earlier in chapter 18, Jonathan stripped himself of his robe and put it on David and gave it to him along with his armor. And that's a picture of Jonathan acknowledging, David, this kingdom is yours. This robe is a picture of the kingdom. So David is crushed because... God has promised him the throne. He has promised that he will be on that throne. But David also understands that it must come God's way in God's time. And in that seemingly insignificant action, David has affronted God. As he cut off Saul's robe, he was, in a a sense, David saw it as an offense against God himself. Because as messed up as Saul is, he is still God's anointed, and it crushed David. His men aren't that quickly persuaded. David persuaded his men with these words, so it seems he did not permit that. So that the men are like, "All right, if you're not going to do it, we will," because they were ready to attack Saul also. And persuaded is not a good. Translation of the word that's used here. The word literally means David tore into his men. He persuaded them, but he did it strongly. Now, I've thought about this all week, all right? At some point in time, Saul gets finished and walks out. But in the back of that cave is an immense heated discussion. And I don't know how they're doing it in a way that Saul doesn't hear. But David did more than just persuade. He tore into his men and said, I will not strike the Lord's anointed and neither will you. And so Saul walks out and a life is spared. How do we make application of that? Well, just hang on. We will. We're going to get to that in just a second. Now notice what happens next. David's actions have been at the center of the text so far. Starting in verse 8 now, it's David's words. Alright? He did not revile in return, but he showed mercy. Secondly, he did not revile in return, and in so doing, his righteousness was made clear like the sunlight. Allah, Psalm 37. His heart is revealed. David's actions, even coming out. So Saul walks out. David follows him, it seems, at a distance. And he yells at Saul, My Lord the King! And not only does he get Saul's attentions with his words, but when Saul looks behind him, look at the humility. David bowed his face to the ground and paid homage to the man who's trying to kill him. To the man who has mustered a five-to-one army to come out and take his life. And David bows his face to the ground and pays homage to King David. And when Saul looked around and saw that, David then stands up and begins to speak. So his actions show his humility. His words reveal his heart. And look at those words. First he says, Saul... What are you listening to? Verse 9. What are you listening to? You're listening to yourself and, and people around you who are saying that I am an enemy who seeks to do you harm. Saul, you need to stop listening to those voices. Secondly, in verse 10, Saul, you need to look. Look. Look at my hand, Saul. Look at what's in my hand. I guess implied in that is, Saul, look down at the corner of your robe. Because here's the proof of my heart. So Saul, what are you listening to? And Saul, what do you see? Your eyes have seen, he says. There's an emphasis on this physical seeing. Your eyes have seen that I didn't kill you. Your eyes are seeing this proof in my hand that I spared your life. The Lord brought you into the cave. David acknowledges that. God put you in my hand. David acknowledges that and so does Saul. And David said, I didn't avenge and I didn't take action. I didn't take your life. What do you see, Saul? You see, God brought you to me and I, and I just we see that he showed him Mercy. And he let him go. What David is saying there is, Saul, listen and look at my hand. But here's what he's really saying. Saul, look at my heart. Look at my heart. Because what do you see in my heart based on the actions that you see with what I've just done? Well, what you see is that, number one, I have not sinned against you, it says there in verse 11. I have not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I still acknowledge you and honor you for what God has chosen to do in your life. And and the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, I want you to see my heart. There's no treason there. I don't want your throne the wrong way. And I have not sinned, even though implied you have. I have not sought to take your life even though you are seeking to take mine in verse 11. So David's trust, David's heart is revealed here. And it's also revealed and summarized even in his acknowledgement that he's going to trust God with the outcome. This could have gone poorly from even right there. His army's vastly outnumbered. And Saul while Saul may have been exposed in the cave, David is exposed out here on the side. The army can do anything it wants to do. So can Saul. But David says, I'm trusting my life to God. That's what he says here. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge against you. But my hand will not be against you. Do you see it? God will do whatever he chooses to do with you, Saul, but my hand will not be against you. And then he uses this old proverb in verse 13 kind of as an illustration of that, okay? And and we don't know the source of this, but basically it's David just refers to this old proverb that says, Out of the wicked come wickedness. And it could be taken two ways. Saul... The reality of your heart is being seen in the fruit of your actions. Out of out of a wicked heart comes wicked actions. Or he could be using that as a contrast to his own life. I'm not doing wicked things toward you, Saul. So my heart is not wicked. It's kind of what Jesus said in Matthew 7. You'll recognize them by their fruits. And this is just that old proverb equal, equal to that, I think, in and in, in, is what David's saying there. So he says, if that's your heart, Saul, just understand my hand will not be against you. And then he kind of looks at it from a practical or a cultural level. And, and Saul, as the king, this is just below you, brother. You've got more important things to do than search out after a dead dog. And that's all I am to you. And not just a dead dog, but the fleas on that dog. Saul, this is below you. You've got better things to do, more important things to do than pursue me. And ultimately he summarizes it there in verse 15. This is my heart, Saul. This is my faith. This is my confidence. Look what he says there in verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it. And plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Saul, God is the jury. He is the judge and he's the executioner. And I'm going to trust my life to him and I'm putting your life in that same place. And what God chooses to do is up to him, but I'm going to trust him. Reminds me of the Israelite children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can put us in that fire. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if He chooses not to, He is still God. And David is saying, I'm going to trust God with this. Alright? He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday, Psalm 37, 6 says. And that's what we see happening in this section. Now look at the last part of it. He did not revile in return. And instead, makes a gracious promise. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Isn't it interesting? Up until now, he's been the son of Jesse, spoken in a less than loving way. <laughs> the son of Jesse. But now, Saul's heart is pricked. I believe it. Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you've, you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. And as you declared this day how you've dealt well with me, or good with me, kindly with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe?" So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. So Saul recognizes and acknowledges in David's actions and in his words, he acknowledges David's heart. And in so doing, in some way, acknowledges his own. Now, is this godly grief that like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians? Or is this simply emotional response to being crushed under the reality of the circumstances? Well, this is a story that will be continued, and I think the continuation of the story will show us that it is the latter. This is not godly grief that leads to true repentance. But even the hardest men in that right circumstance get emotional or in some way are broken temporarily by the demonstration of love and grace. So David's actions and words touch Saul's heart. He acknowledges David's righteousness, David's integrity, David's honor. He acknowledges that. You are more righteous than I because you've repaid me good, whereas I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do evil to you. He acknowledges David's reign. This is the first time we've heard this from Saul. Look at verse 20. I know that you shall surely be king. What is it that's changed is it something he's heard from Jonathan, his son? Is it something that he's seen played out now over these months or years that, he, that David's been hiding in the wilderness? Has he seen the integrity of David's heart and seen the reality of his faith and recognized the difference between himself and David? Whatever's going on, I'm not sure, but he acknowledges that David will be king and that God will establish the kingdom in his hand. It's an amazing response from him. I wish we could say, well, it's going to change his whole approach to David, but it doesn't. It just reveals more of his sinful heart. He requests David's mercy in verse 21. He's already said, this is not the way the world works, David. If a man finds his enemies, does he let him go away safe? Well, the answer to that is no. Not in the culture of that day or ours. Well, kind of implied with that is what we've seen before. The social and political process of that day is that when you take the throne, you do away with those who could come and lay claim to it. And Saul's asking him not to do that. Just like Saul's Jonathan, his son, had asked David not to do that. And back in chapter 20, Jonathan said, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast covenant love of the Lord that I may not die. And don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And it said Jonathan made a covenant with David that day. And David made a covenant with Jonathan. And they swore their love to each other. So David's already made that promise to Jonathan. David is a man of his words. He makes that same promise to Saul. David swore this to Saul. Saul goes home. David goes back to the caves. David's wise enough to recognize that one emotional outburst on the side of the mountain may not really be an indication of a changed heart. But that's a story to be continued. What do we do with this? How do do we apply this into into our lives? Well, I think 1 Samuel chapter 24 says, First off, and I can post these for you, but if you just want to jot down these four things, I think first Samuel twenty four has an application for our trust. Our trust. The temptation is to take shortcuts and power grabs. And that's a temptation for every single one of us in one way or another. The temptation for us is to not want to go through the wilderness, but listen, the wilderness is the classroom, it is God's Classroom for sanctification. The slow slog through the wilderness is how God sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ. There are no shortcuts. There's no pills that you can take to get there. Just remember that big picture. Rescue after the fall. Recreation, restoration. Slavery, freedom from slavery, wilderness, and then the promised land. And this season in David's life is just a reminder of what God will do for us, in us, and around us, to grow our trust. And listen, even Jesus, here's a mysterious part of the Incarnation. Jesus is fully God, fully man. He knows everything about being God. But there are some aspects of humanity that you learn only through being human. And the writer of Hebrews points this out to us in chapter 5 where he says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe him. Jesus had to go through suffering to know what it is to suffer as a man. He had to slog his way through the wilderness. So this addresses our trust, church. And those difficult circumstances and issues and and situations and people that come into our lives. God providentially determines that that's going to be a means of him growing us up in Christ and making us more like Jesus and less like the world. This addresses our trust. Secondly, I believe this speaks to our conscience. Here's the question. Is your conscience seared or soft? Seared or soft? Soft. Here's what's amazing about this. David saw David saw Saul differently than anybody else on that mountain. He saw him differently. He saw Saul as God's anointed. Crazy half the time or more? Yes. Unpredictable? Yes. Good with a spear? Not really, but He throws it pretty often. But in spite of all of that, he understood what no one else did. That by taking action against God's anointed, he is taking action against God. And it crushed his spirit. It crushed his conscience. I bring this up because John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, and he's speaking to the church. Listen to this. You have been anointed by the Holy One. In verse 27 he says, the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. His anointing teaches you about everything. Here's the point that, that John makes there, is that, now understand, David has been anointed as the King of Israel. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, So it's different for you and me, but we have been anointed by God through the Holy Spirit if we put our faith and trust in Christ. And the political and social climate of our culture sears our conscience. And what happens is that too often we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, we see them as adversaries. We see them as opponents. We see them as annoyances rather than seeing them as anointed and fellow citizens of the kingdom and fellow saints brought together by God and brothers and sisters in Christ adopted by the same grace into the same family through the same blood of one Savior, Jesus So the politics of our day will sear our conscience to those who Jesus laid down his life to save. And all of the, all of the desires and ambitions of the culture sear our conscience to the gospel reality that we're called to lay down our lives for the sake of others. David saw Saul differently. We must see each other in that same light as anointed by God, brought into his kingdom and into his family. And that's like James says in 3.10. He says, we use our voices to sing praises and then we use our voices and our keyboards and our phones to cut and, and attack each other. And he says, brothers, this ought not be. It just ought not be. May God give His church a soft conscience to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may God give His church a soft conscience even in regard to our own freedom, our own liberty. Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 13, you are called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, that we are free in Christ. We can make all kinds of choices about all kinds of things in this life. But that freedom can also in our sinfulness sear our conscience to what's going on in the lives of our brothers and sisters by our choices. The culture will tell us it's okay. And it might be. Unless it causes a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So is your conscience soft or is it seared? Thirdly. This text speaks to our constraint or our restraint or, if you will, our patience to wait on God, to let God be the judge and the avenger on our behalf. Back in Psalm 37, it says, commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the noonday sun. Brother Mark's word to me was, Gerald, you can put that in that letter if you want to, but sooner or later, what's in your heart's going to come out. It'll come out on this other guy too. But sooner or later, your heart's going to be revealed. Are you going to trust the Lord with Him in this situation and your church? Or are you going to take action yourself? And when it says commit your way to the Lord and trust in Him, that means our constraint, our patience to wait on God. And this double emphasis says I'm just going to roll my faith and my trust in the Lord. He is the judge. He is the jury. He is the avenger. So I'm going to trust Him. And I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient as the the world or somebody else talks about me. I'm going to be patient as the world takes a position that's contrary to what I know God would say. And we must do this. Because that righteousness that ultimately is going to be revealed, listen to this, this leads us to the last point. That righteousness that ultimately will be revealed is the righteousness of Christ or the lack of it. That's the last thing. David is a pattern for us. He's an example for us. And he points us to the one who is the pattern. Jesus. As we get ready to come to this communion table, I invite you to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Gary read it to us a few minutes ago. I just want to point one thing out to you as we prepare for the table here. interesting that the the context of what Peter writes here is in the context of politics and personal relationships. It's amazing how that fits into the context of that. And and he just immediately takes us to Jesus. Okay, He says, if you're if you're suffering for doing good, I'm in first Peter, chapter two, looking at verse twenty. He says, what credit is, is it to you if you sin and are punished for it and you hold up under it? That just means you got tough skin exteriorly. He says, what credit is it if that happens? But if you suffer for doing good, he says in verse 20, and you endure under that, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Because you're following, he says there, the example of Christ. Christ suffered for you, substitutionary there, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So David sets an example for us. And Jesus sets an example for us. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. What were the first words of Jesus from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't they don't know what they're doing. But it goes past being a pattern. Jesus is not just a pattern to follow. Praise God, he's not. He's the price. He's the perfect pattern. He's the perfect price. Look what Peter says. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He suffered, but he did not threaten he just kept on trusting. He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And then look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed from Isaiah. Jesus is our pattern to follow. If that's where it stopped, it would be hopeless. Hopeless. We couldn't a bit more follow his pattern than I can reach up and fly to the ceiling right now. But he's more than just a pattern. He's the price. He's the the substitute for my injustice. He's the substitute when I lose my patience. He's the substitute when I want to crush instead of responding like Christ. He bore... My sin in his body on the tree that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore your sin in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore your sin and gave you his life, his anointing so that you can trust God with that difficult situation, that difficult person, this difficult culture. Now, one thing I've not addressed today, and I don't intend to, is, well, wait a minute, Gerald. There is a time when we're called to rise up. There is a time when we're called to take action. There is a time when we're called to defend, uh, da 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 And I'm not going to address that because, you know what, we don't need lessons in that. We were born knowing what it is to do to defend ourselves and others. That's the culture's way. And there is a place for that. Scripture speaks to that. We need to be reminded that there is also another way. Because I don't think we get that reminder very often. So this table, this cup and these crackers here are a reminder that He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die and then live and then feast. You can't carry your sin. That same God who will judge justly your enemies will also judge your soul. Have you trusted in the one who is the substitute, the savior, the lightning bolt that takes the wrath of God that you and I deserve? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? And I don't mean just trying to be religious. I mean, roll it over onto him. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. And in faith, trust in Jesus and his perfection, his work, his righteousness. That's what it means to to trust. That's what it means to be saved. So trust in him. And then, church, our trust in him that saves us is that same trust that sustains us every day. In light of a culture that's opposed, enemies that seek to crush, and all kinds of things that call for us to respond as the world will respond. And Jesus says, no. Follow me. Follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season in David's life. I'm not sure we're as quick to thank you for the season that we're in. But we pray, Lord, that you'll help us see your purpose is being accomplished, your grace sustaining, and that God, through every wound, through every insult, through every difficulty, you are growing us in Christ. Do that, I pray. Lord, I pray if anyone has never trusted in Jesus today, they would do that today. And I ask that in His name. Amen.